You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. I'm your host, Robin Johnson. And an issue that is growing in intensity and interest in Iowa and across the Midwest, both at the state and local levels, and even at the federal level, is that of carbon dioxide pipelines. Now, these are different from oil pipelines, which you may have heard of, our listeners may have heard of, like the Keystone Pipeline from several years ago that have received a lot of attention. Um, I thought, you know what, I need to learn more about this, and I think maybe our listeners do as well. So my thought was to have uh, a reporter on who's been covering this very closely for many years and um, to kind of learn more about this. And while there may not be a direct impact on folks in the Quad City region right now. There, there certainly may be in the future, and we'll find out about that as well. My guest is Jared Strong. He's a senior reporter for the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Before that, he had worked 15 years in journalism with the Carroll Times-Herald and the Des Moines Register. Uh, Jared, thanks for coming on. Hey, Robin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, I, in trying to give a primer here to our listeners a little bit, uh, talk a little bit about the background of these pipelines. Why are they carrying carbon dioxide? And we'll get into some of the interesting uh, issues and, and strange bedfellows, so to speak, uh, on this issue a little later. But kind of give a background on on these these two pipelines. Yeah, well, we uh, there's actually three in Iowa. There's two that are are quite massive. Um, uh, one by Summit Carbon Solutions. Uh, which would um, take captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, North Dakota, and sequester it in North Dakota. Um, uh, the second uh, large project is proposed by Navigator CO2, and that one would take uh, carbon dioxide from uh, ethanol plants and other facilities in five states, uh, but sequester it in Illinois. And then there's a smaller one, uh, Wolf Carbon by Wolf Carbon Solutions, and that one's kind of down in your area. Uh, uh, reaches up into Cedar Rapids, is going to you know connect to two um, ethanol plants and uh, for sequestration in Illinois. Um, so the the purpose of them, of course, uh, you know what what the federal government uh, conceived when it. Um, you know, created tax incentives uh, for these projects is to capture greenhouse gases, you know, to help, uh, uh, you know, reverse course of uh, climate change. Um, but they are general, they are generous federal tax credits. And so there, there's two of them that come into play. One um, goes to folks who capture their carbon dioxide and, and sequester it. Um, you can, you can, capture it and use it for other purposes, but the, the biggest tax credit goes to those folks who are sequestering it. And then there's another tax credit um, that rewards uh, producers of low carbon fuels. 
So for, since we're talking about ethanol plants, you know, there's, there's an opportunity. It was designed so that people could take advantage of one or the other, but it's interesting in, in the case of Summit Carbon's project, they will actually own the capture equipment um, at these ethanol plants. And so there's a potential that they could get the tax credits for capturing and sequestering. And then the ethanol plants could potentially get uh, the tax credits for creating low carbon fuels. Um, that hasn't been sussed out very well. That was certainly not the intent of federal lawmakers, but I think that that is a possibility. And so, so when it gets down to it, it is those lucrative tax credits that are making these projects possible. I'm uh, I'm curious about the term sequester. Uh, I know when we talked about nuclear energy, they talked about uh, nuclear storage out of Nevada. And uh, that, of course, had the locals all concerned. But is this the same thing? I mean, how do you sequester means, does it mean burying it in someplace safe? Or can you explain that a little? Yeah, well, they uh, there are certain geological formations that are, are can contain carbon dioxide when you pump it very deep below the ground, you know, in excess of a thousand feet, probably more than that. Um, so yeah, the idea is that there's this uh, there's this uh, ability to just pump it underground and it stays there. And of course, I, I don't know a lot about that, but I mean, it, it certainly is being done right now in in states like Illinois. Um, so they've had success with it, but you know there there are people that that the notion of that kind of freaks them out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are the risks? I mean, um, I, it, is it uh, leaks? Is it explosions? Is it uh, I mean terrorists taking over? I mean, what 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 are the what are the risks here? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think federal regulators would say that these pipelines um, at least. To this point, are have been relatively safe. Um, you know, uh, safety concerns about it is one of the primary concerns that pipeline opponents bring up, and they all point to an incident that happened a couple of years ago in uh, Satarsha, Mississippi, where there was some torrential downpour that led to some shifting of soil, and that caused a major breach of a pipeline down there. And so in that case, I don't, I don't think anyone, I don't think there are any actual uh, eyewitnesses to the site when that breach happened. But my understanding is that uh, because they're under such intense pressures, there is sort of an explosion that happens. And then there's, you know, carbon dioxide leaks out. So generally, um, uh, from what I've heard from federal regulators, is that when such a breach happens, it's typical for the carbon dioxide to just kind of dissipate. But under certain um, conditions, you know, when the when the weather is just such, and when the when the topography is just right, and this is what happened in Satarsha, that plume of carbon dioxide, uh, which it, carbon dioxide is heavier than the air that we breathe uh, typically. Um, it, it, it just gathered, it stayed in this, in this dense plume. And then the topography was such that it sort of, it traveled downhill for this town, you know, and they, they had to evacuate residents. Uh, nobody died. Um, but I think 50 people somewhere around there sought treatment at a hospital. 
And one of the emergency responders down there has said that three people came very close to dying. They, they weren't equipped to, they weren't equipped to respond to it. You know, um, carbon dioxide in a plume like that suffocates people, it suffocates animals, it suffocates vehicles. Um, and, uh, and beyond that, through some, I, I'm not exactly sure uh, how this happened, but the emergency responders in that area had no idea had no idea that there was even a carbon dioxide pipeline there. So, so they, you know, when when they got reports of something going on, that wasn't even on their radar. It took them a while to figure out what exactly was happening. Yeah, that's uh, now. Are these pipelines? Jared, are they above ground or below ground? They're below ground. Typically, uh, about four feet would be the the top of of the pipeline, and they they range in size from um, you know because they have like the main lines that go through the states, and they have all these connector lines that go out to the ethanol plant. So they range from about eight inches in diameter to twenty four inches in diameter, but they are below ground. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, this is going to show that I was usually looking out the window during basic science class, but carbon dioxide is a gas. Uh, is there a risk of it getting into the water supply, gas, liquid? Uh, is is that a risk, a concern? Um, it, it is a concern among residents. I've heard that raised several times, but I haven't uh, really heard that uh, raised by, you know, federal regulators that that's a, that that's a big problem. I mean, you know, it's close enough to the surface, um, and as soon as it so when it, when the carbon dioxide is being transported through these pipelines, it's highly pressurized, and it's at a you know a reasonably high temperature, and so it 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 exists in this sort of status that's between a liquid and a gas. They call it a supercritical fluid, and you know when it loses that pressure, it it becomes gas immediately. You know, so I, I I can't. I'm sure it's possible that there could be some contamination, but I'm not sure that that's you know a, a, a super big concern. Okay. Um. So these were proposed, and there there uh the, there's a process for getting these approved. It seems like based on the, the 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 work you've done, it's both a state and local process. Is that correct? Both the state authorities and local, I mean, can the counties try to block this coming through their county? Well, it kind of, it depends on the state. Um, so things range from, for instance, in Nebraska, there there is no state process for it. You don't have to get a permit to build one of these pipelines. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. In, uh, in Iowa, it's, it's basically a state level process. And there have been counties that have tried to enact ordinances to restrict how close they can be placed to homes, livestock facilities, you know, nursing homes, schools, all those other places. And um, uh, at least one federal judge has ruled that those uh, ordinances are improper based on state law. Um, now, like up in the Dakotas, um, those states do allow their counties to enact restrictions but the state regulators who have the ultimate authority on uh, granting the permits for those projects, they can overrule them. They can, you know, they can say these are too restrictive and, uh, and we're going to approve the permit anyway. So that gets into issues of eminent domain where if it's approved, uh, then the, the project developers can come in and try to buy 
uh, land, uh, and and I'm sure that's going to get cause some issues as well from local property owners. It is probably the single biggest unifying issue um, uh, as far as you know the opponents go for these pipelines. So the you know these companies they don't actually own any of the land or hardly any of it, if any, um, of where they're putting their pipelines. They um, they try to negotiate uh, easements for construction, but uh, in absence of that, um, they're they're seeking eminent domain to sort of force those easements. And uh, you know. There has been a lot of talk about whether it's proper to do that for a project like this because it's not, it's not like a, a gas line or you know an electrical line where it's benefiting the people in the area. Um, I suppose you could make the argument that sequestering carbon dioxide benefits everybody because you know it, it's it's reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in the air, but uh, you know. Uh, our state rep from uh, Denison, Steve Holt, he's been one of the, you know, sort of the leaders charging against this notion that you can use eminent domain for this project. He calls it an economic development project. And, you know, a, 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 one of the rallying cries from pipeline opponents is, you know, no eminent domain for private gain. So there are a lot of people that don't think that this serves a public use that is sufficient to qualify for eminent domain. Are there a lot of jobs? Or is there, you mentioned economic development, is, is this going to create a lot of jobs in Iowa, both uh, constructing it and uh, ongoing? Um, it, it's, it's as far as like a big boost in jobs, that's going to be a, a temporary, you know, uh, situation while they're building it. And, you know, people have argued, too, that a lot of the people who are going to come or who are going to be building the pipeline would come from out of state anyway. So it's not necessarily going to create Iowa jobs. Um, the uh, the pipeline companies and ethanol producers, um, uh, you know, support these projects or, or say that people should support them because it supports the ethanol industry. There's, a, you know, there's this argument that uh, the projects would help um, ethanol plants remain viable going into the future by helping them produce uh, low carbon fuels. And so then it's thought that there's this, you know, sort of trickle down effect to agriculture. I mean, in Iowa, more than half our corn goes to produce ethanol. So, you know, the argument is that if the ethanol producers are benefiting, that's going to benefit the price of corn, that's going to benefit the farmers and just, you know, the rest of Iowa in general. Um, so, you know, there, I mean, there's a flip side of that too. Not everybody likes high prices of corn. Some people feed their animals with it and, you know, <laughs> would prefer it be lower. So, <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And my guest today is Jared Strong, who's a senior reporter with the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Uh, he's formerly wrote for the Herald Times Herald and the Des Moines Register. We're talking about the issue of carbon dioxide uh, pipelines in Iowa, and Jared's been covering this. And uh, to do my research, I read pretty much exclusively his articles. Uh, and if you're interested, you can go to the Capital Dispatch uh, website and look through those. Uh, it's a very important issue in the state. Uh, it's affecting other states, including Illinois, across the river here. So. Uh, 
we've been talking a little bit about some, just some background on these pipelines. There's three. Uh, I, I'm curious, what's the status of each of them uh, as, as, as we sit right now? Where, where, where are they at in the decision-making process, both overall and in the state of Iowa? Yeah, I mentioned before, we've got Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator CO2, and Wolf Carbon Solutions. Summit appears to be the farthest along in its um, in its process. It certainly is in Iowa. Um, it, it recently had an its and its permit process in Iowa has been going on for a shade over two years now. Um, they start with informational meetings and they have to supply all sorts of evidence to the Iowa Utilities Board, and then it, it kind of culminates in an evidentiary hearing that started um, August 22nd. Um, the board had hoped that it would go for six weeks. It went longer than that. Um, it went seven weeks. And because of other board commitments, they had to uh, postpone the, you know, the uh, the proceedings until, and they, they're supposed to issue an order on that here sometime soon, but it, it it's looking like it might continue in November. And they're hoping to have a decision from the Iowa Utilities Board by the end of the year. So, Summit is the farthest along in Iowa. Navigator C CO2 has suspended its permit proceedings in Iowa. It suffered a setback in South Dakota. They denied a permit for the um, for its route up there. South Dakota isn't super important for Navigator in the grand scheme of things. Uh, the bulk of their pipeline networks in Iowa. So the initial thought was that maybe they would just abandon that part of the route. Uh, but it wasn't long after that happened up in South Dakota that they that they uh, sort of voluntarily suspended their uh, uh, permit proceedings in Iowa, saying that they wanted to um, uh, see what Illinois said about their permit before they move forward. Well, now just very recently they've suspended. They asked to suspend or actually withdraw their application in Illinois. And so Navigator's uh, proposal is more or less at a halt right now. They've left open the, um, you know, the idea that they would come back and, and reapply, uh, but they haven't committed to that. So Summit also uh, was denied a, a permit request in South Dakota. And they are going to reapply up there. They were also denied a permit in North Dakota. And... Um, North Dakota has agreed to reconsider the application. So everything in the Dakotas is very much in flux for Summit right now. And, um, you know, by them having to reimply in South Dakota, and as far as I know, they haven't yet, that process can take up to a year by statute. So they that's quite a delay for them. Um, and then the third company, Wolf Carbon, they've They've committed to not using eminent domain for their project. So that has the potential to sort of elongate, you know, their, their process and their permit process in Iowa has not had movement in, in months. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where exactly they're at yet. It looked to me like too, I, I looked at a map, at least two of these, and most of the pipeline is in the state of Iowa. Is that correct? Yeah, for Summit and Navigator, definitely. Yeah, yeah, the bulk of it. We, I mean, we've got the ethanol plants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it it really has created some some interesting alliances, and in that uh, you know the ethanol industry would be pushing this. I would imagine some of the 
building trades, you know, provide jobs for their members, but yet uh, opposing it or groups like environmental groups in the in the Farm Bureau, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Well, Farm Bureau has been kind of walking this middle road, you know, um, but but you're right. No, we've got the Sierra Club against it, other environmentally minded people. And then we also have Republicans and farmers that, you know, you wouldn't yeah. uh, <laughs> consider being in the same group, but they've sort of unified um, in a way together uh, in opposition. And they have different reasons, you know, I mean, they... Uh, everyone talks about safety people are worried about damage to the to the farmland um when uh, the dakota axis oil pipeline went in you know several years ago there was this notion that oh we can we can put the land back together the way that it was before and i i think we found out that that was not nearly as easy as as we thought it might be um so there i, I would assume there's going to be more oversight uh, to prevent that from happening again uh, you know, there's the eminent domain issue um, that, that everybody talks about. But then also, you know, I, I guess what might set someone like the Sierra Club separate from, you know, Republicans and, and, and some farmers would be that uh, they're, they're, they don't think that it's worthy doing this because it will, because it will um, help the ethanol, help sustain the ethanol industry more long term, you know. They want to switch to electric vehicles. Uh, they want to switch away from burning fuels to propel vehicles. And they just don't think that's, you know, that's not the future. So that's why a project like this, you know, isn't isn't as valid for them. Yeah, that's interesting. The environmental movement that, that would, you know, support ethanol <clears throat> as a way to reduce dependence on fossil fuels to some degree. But yet, um, you know, this is a part of that process, but it seems like they're still taking a pretty strong stance against it. Yeah, well, you would, I mean, you would think that sequestering, you know, greenhouse gases would be a, a pretty good reason to support it. But, but no, it, uh, you know, uh, generally folks, uh, you know, the environmental groups aren't huge fans of, of ethanol just because, you know, it, it, while that does have some impact on reducing fossil fuels, it's still being burnt right alongside fossil fuels, you know. Interesting uh, political um, partisan uh, angles on this as well. As you had mentioned, um, the uh, Biden administration and some of the legislation passed mostly with Democratic support. Some of these bills were bipartisan, but this is a major part of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act infrastructure laws where there's uh, enormous incentives for carbon capture as part of the Biden agenda. But you wrote about uh, the suspicions that um, Governor Reynolds was trying to put her, say, uh, foot on the scales to try to support this somewhat. Is there uh, what, what was the story behind that? Is she is she taking a, a stand on these or is it in, in, in the interests of, you know, uh, promoting the state's business climate? Is that is that the reason? Well, I think that the, a lot of the suspicions um, uh, behind that are first rooted in the fact that we have, you know, we've had two legislative sessions since these pipelines were first proposed. And in those sessions, lawmakers failed to pass any kind of legislation that would restrict uh, carbon dioxide pipelines. They came the closest uh, this past session when the House uh, passed a bill that that said 
you know, these companies need to get 90% voluntary easements before they get eminent domain for the last 10%. Uh, that did not get picked up by the Senate. Um, it didn't, it didn't even get a vote. Um, uh, so it, I think it's kind of rooted in that. And then you have, uh, the person behind Summit Carbon Solutions, uh, Bruce Rastetter, his, his, uh, his uh, Summit Agricultural Group sort of spawned this whole effort. And Rastetter is a major player. I mean, he's, he's very wealthy. Uh, people think that he has a lot of political influence. And there are emails showing that he was trying to meet with Reynolds, you know, uh, you know during this process. So uh, the, the, other, the other part is that uh, the Iowa Utilities Board, um, they, had a, they had a shakeup of leadership. And that came uh, in the spring. Uh, Governor Reynolds appointed, it was, it was kind of out of the blue, appointed a new chairperson for the Iowa Utilities Board to replace an outgoing uh, board member. But not only did she replace the outgoing board member, she also named that person you know, to lead the board in the middle of this very long and complicated, you know, probably the most complicated project, uh, projects that the Iowa Utilities Board has considered, um, that led the uh, then chairperson to resign. So now we've got two new board members uh, who are, you know, overseeing this process. So that that is what people would point to when they say, you know, Governor Reynolds might have been trying to tip tip the scales a bit. She's denied it. Um, you know, she said that uh, it's it's common to get new blood into uh, you know boards and committees like that, and uh, that's her explanation for it. Real quick, I've just got time for a couple more questions. What what's if these get rejected? Um... What's the alternative to sequestration? Is there anything? Well, I mean, so this is out of state sequestration for us. Uh, there is some potential believed to that that Iowa has to just sequester locally. You know, we we could uh, either have smaller pipelines or no pipelines where people are just sequestering on site. But Iowa is, uh, you know, stands apart from a state like North Dakota uh, because we don't have oil production here. You know, there's a lot of all, all that oil exploration that went on up in North Dakota also told them what the geology looks like underneath the surface. And so they know where they can, you know, where they can sequester carbon dioxide. In Iowa, we have very limited exploration like that. So it's believed that maybe about half of the state is capable of it, but, you know, uh, we just don't know, and it's, it would take years to figure that out, and it'd be expensive. The other option would be, and some ethanol plants are currently doing this in Iowa, is that they can capture their carbon dioxide and then sell it for other purposes. You know, dry ice, or I don't know what else you do with carbon dioxide, but you know, there are a handful of ethanol plants that are doing that right now. Got about thirty seconds left. Final question for Jared Strong with Iowa Capital Dispatch: What? ask you to look in a crystal ball, which one of these three you think will get done first and how soon will that be? I mean, Summits is definitely the farthest along. Navigators right now is looking uh, kind of in doubt. It's hard to say, uh, Wolf, I don't know. But I mean, from the beginning, Summits seemed the most organized. And 
you know, it, it appears that they're on track to get a permit in Iowa. I, I haven't seen anything that uh, would indicate otherwise at this point. Their problem is uh, the Dakotas. So, and that again, remains very much up in the air. So it's, it's hard to tell. Summit says if they don't get uh, uh, permission in either of the Dakotas, the project's not happening. So I, you know, it, we're, whether or not this gets built in Iowa is really dependent on what happens in other states. Well, that is, I hope, I think, just about everything you'd ever want to know about carbon dioxide pipelines in Iowa. If not, we've covered just about everything. And I really appreciate my guest today uh, shining a light on this issue, which again, if you've heard of it, maybe needed a little, little more information. I think Jared's done a great job at enlightening us all on this. He's Jared Strong. He's a senior reporter for Iowa Capital Dispatch. Jared, thank you so much for being our guest today. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.